everybody, it's Marissa with Lions on Leashes. Today we have Kleana Lightborn. She's a writer, educator, community organizer, activist, and founder of NNLB. Hailing from Miami, Florida, Kleana was a founding member of Black Lives Matter Upstate New York, a newly founded organization, NNLB, a 2020 cohort of the New Leader Council in the Capital District, a proud Union College alum, and has sat on numerous panels for restorative justice practices. In addition to offering her insight on the difficult and necessary topic of accountability within organizing and activist communities, Kleana is determined in her fight for freedom, reparations, equality, and replacement of mass incarceration with restorative justice practices and a chance for redemption, transformative healing, and strengthening communities. For all things Kleana, and to learn more about NNLB, check out nnlbunited.com. Kleana was so genuine, so brave, absolutely wonderful to talk to. One of the things that was a big cultural shift for her, moving from Miami, was wearing snow boots. She had to practice walking in them in her room. This was so eye-opening for me because I always lived in a place with four seasons. When it's something you grew up with your whole life, and you know, obviously that being snow, you wear snow boots, but I don't know, it was just something I never actually thought about and that it can be so unfamiliar and life-changing for someone else, no, really, no matter what it is. So even though there's something that you lived with your whole life that you wouldn't even think twice about, it could be the polar opposite for someone else. She went to an MSNBC town hall at the correctional facility Sing Sing and was a guest of the John Legend. She talks about that experience and it was really, really cool. I felt like I always kind of knew that prisons were in poor conditions, but, but I learned a lot. So I didn't just learn about the dilapidation of their actual structures, but that their meals lack standard nutrients that they aren't allowed hand sanitizer because of the alcohol content, which is in that, which then obviously didn't help the spread of COVID within, within those walls. I asked her, how does it feel to be brave? And her answer was real and raw. I'm not going to share her answer. You'll just have to listen to the wonderful Kleana Lightborn. And with that said, let's get this episode started. So I want to hear your story. So you're from Florida originally. I am originally from Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So what brought you up here? How did you get to where you are today? You, you play a role, a very strong role in the community. So take me, take me through the journey. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. I'm first generation American. My parents are from the Bahamas. I went to private school most of my life. The way that I found myself in upstate New York is that my senior year, my college counselor, uh, well, junior, really, junior year, my college counselor and I were discussing schools. And I said, I wanted to go to, I wanted to go somewhere as similar as campus Ransom Everglades. And he was like, I actually think I know just the place for you. So I ended up applying to Union, never visited campus except for like my first day going. I would look at the, there was this uh, camera in the observatory that would look down on the quad. And so I would check that all the time. And really I would check to see how much snow it there was like was coming. Uh, Cause I did not get the concept of snow at all. 
got there, you know, I studied psychology, I studied theater, I graduated with a bachelor's in psychology with a minor in theater. I worked with AmeriCorps, I then moved on to working for a small tech firm in Clifton Park, like it really went from like working in their basement to like getting our, our own office and kind of seeing it grow that way. And, you know, I kind of progressed and moved into organizing. The murder of Trayvon Martin was really what woke me up to I guess like realizing that I have to do something, I have to be a part of something. And that's really where I found my tribe, my group of friends. Until then, I didn't really have friends in the area and it really was an amazing experience. So I have to go back a little bit. And I'm sure. note, you never came to visit. I never came to visit. Why? Well, you know, again, it, it's a thing of, it's a really, it really is a cultural thing. My parents were first generation. Well, excuse me, I'm first generation American. So my parents didn't really get that of like, hey, we have to go visit this school and stuff. And also we couldn't really afford it. You know, I grew up. Yeah, like I grew up in a small apartment with my mom. I had been to New York a couple of times before, but the thought of like going to New York to see a college that I might go to just didn't register for my parents. And I didn't feel comfortable really asking them for something like that. So I would look at the websites. Yeah. Wow. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay. I'm 30. I'm going to be 31 next month. So back then the streaming wasn't really like a thing. So you got super lucky. Yeah. It really was like looking a sick, like it was really like looking at a security camera (laughs) when I was looking at the videos and stuff. Yeah. Wow. I mean, obviously your parents are like proud, right? Like, Hey, I have, I'm going to go to school. I am going to, so you majored in psychology with theater. So what did you originally want to do? So I originally wanted to be a psychologist. I wanted to be a therapist. I knew since I was 12 and I'd really been looking at colleges since I was 12. I had like a little book of like all the colleges in the U.S. And I would kind of just like read through it and look at it. And, you know, we didn't really have Internet like that. So the best I could do was write in to get catalogs from them. My parents really thought I was going to go to the University of Miami. They thought I was going to stay local, but I really didn't want to. I felt, you know, my my parents were very (laughs) they were they they were strict and not in not strict in a way that really made my life not fun, but I just felt like there were more opportunities and more of the world that I just wasn't seeing because of like the strict household and the way that things were run. And also again, because of this cultural clash, it's like I'm being raised in America, but I'm being kept under these like old world rules, you know, or or from the, you know, uh, rules from the old country that really just did it. It it was hindering, I guess, like my social progress. Like I really felt like when I went to college, I was so, I was academically, I was absolutely prepared, but I was emotionally unprepared. Like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) Yeah. So it it was difficult, but navigating that like cultural stuff while, you know, and I feel like going to college really um, showed the difference of, you know, how I was being raised versus how the world ran, I guess. Did that culture <laughs> shock scare you? I don't think it scared me. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if scared would be the right word, but I think it did catch me off guard a lot. Like I wasn't allowed to date when I was in high school. So now I've moved thousands of miles away and I have a crush on a boy and 
I don't know what to do. Or, you know, like I would miss really key signals of flirting or something. And that, and that would get me into trouble until like maybe a few years ago, even things would happen. And my partner at the time would be like, God, that's so obvious. How did you not know? And I'm like, cause I, it literally does not happen to me. Like, I don't, I, I wouldn't think that way. I wouldn't think that was an issue. I think the biggest, like the way that I know how sheltered I was is that my first weekend at college, you know, they had, you know, parties happened. So we all went to a party and I was like, wow, this is great. This is college. Amazing. You know, and then next week, the next weekend, there was another party and I was like, okay, cool. This is great. This is amazing. And then like the third weekend, there was another party. And I honestly asked somebody like, oh, is it someone's birthday? Because I did not understand partying for the sake of it being the weekend. I was like, there must be a reason or something like that. So, so that definitely showed me <laughs> that, uh, that I was definitely stepping into a different world. And uh, I learned to keep my mouth closed a little while longer to kind of see the way things, see the way things play out versus, yeah, putting my foot in my mouth. Yeah, it was, it was that. And I think walking in boots, actually, that was another culture shock. Um, I mean, in Miami, I didn't really think of it. Like I wore sneakers and I wore sandals or flip-flops, but wearing boots, I felt like, you know, with the way those cats walk when they wear shoes, that was me for like probably like three days. I had to practice in my room how to walk in boots because it just like felt so weird. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Coming from Long Island, I've mentioned this a few times here, Coming from Long Island, though, it's still a shock of the weather. Like today, it's April 22nd and it started, it's been snowing for two days and or 24 hours. And to this day, I have to mentally prepare or I crumble mentally. Like, you know, like I said, I yeah. ate two ice cream sandwiches today for no reason, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it is, I mean, I give you so much credit and others that move in such a cultural shift because usually it's the opposite. It's, people up here trying to escape to what you're living in right yeah. the other way everyone's probably like why like what you know but- I do get that a lot like what like you're from Miami you know because I still have the 305 number um I still kept the area code because it means so much to- it truly means so much to me and people are like what area code is that and when I tell them they're like why are you here let's go back like you take me and let's go back <laughs> They've never heard a Pitbull song, Mr. 305. Exactly. Hello. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, he's actually, this is how small Miami is. He actually gets his haircut at my, at like my childhood friend's barber shop. And he's founded a few schools that are like within a five mile radius of my, you know, the home I grew up in. Yeah, Miami's pretty tiny. Yeah. Well, that's really nice. That is small. (laughs) So I always say the word so, so we're going to retract that. No, it's okay. I say I'm that. a parrot on the podcast. I'm like, so, 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 like, <laughs> I, I didn't it. say like, and stuff like that. I think I say that a lot. Yeah. I, I am a, a so parrot. And then sometimes when I'm editing, I can't on, I can't get the so out. So I'm like, yeah. So, and then I go, I love it. Or my heart. <laughs> and I really mean that. I just want to yeah. say to the listeners what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so. So how did you get into bail reform? And before you answer that, I did some research because I'm not very educated on it. I'll be, I'll tell Mm -hmm. you right now. State pretrial laws haven't been touched since 1971 from what 
you Correct. have taught me. Yeah. There were three major reforms that you worked on. And I have another follow-up question because I want to know what that is. Sure. Is discovery reform different? Yes, it is. Okay. Can you yeah. educate us on what you've worked on from a bail reform and then explain discovery reform? Absolutely. So the way that we actually did organizing and like activism around like the bail reform stuff was that we actually lumped in discovery with it because it was just easier for people to digest that way. So with bail reform, it really is about getting people out on the street faster kind of removing those financial barriers um, that keep poor people um, is what it really is, that keep poor people from going home to, you know, to raise their families, to to continue their jobs, to feed their pets, to keep their homes, that kind of thing. Discovery really helps folks get to the evidence or whatever information that has been that has been collected for their case, it helps them get to it faster. A lot of times what happens when folks are going to trial and they have a a public defender or some kind of attorney or stuff, but usually it happens with a public defender where folks aren't able to really pay for their own representation. Public defenders get discovery paperwork the night before a trial. And that really keeps them from going through that information, from following up on witnesses or really questioning some of the validity of some evidence that keep, you know, that really hinder the case for the person that they're defending. So we really worked hard to kind of push the clock back on that. Folks have to get, you know, you have to get the discovery or the evidence and all that stuff. You have to get that to the public defender and really whoever's doing the defense, you have to get that to them sooner. I think it's within two weeks of the day that you were arrested for the offense, the alleged offense. Tell me how you got into this. Yeah. Okay. So Like I said before, Trayvon Martin was really a wake-up call for me around 2013. I started organizing with my tribe, really with with a a group of people that I really, that kind of got me and I got them. Um, And it was really easy for us to kind of start organizing in tandem. We, together, we founded Black Lives Matter Upstate New York, which was actually like an official chapter that was officially recognized by the Black Lives Matter, you know, national team. And it was on the website and we went to the first convening and all that great stuff. So our organizing really went from that and it blossomed into different things. There were folks in our group that really like started focusing on more specific things. We had folks that were focusing on community outreach, policy, you know, uh, food justice, that kind of thing. And I think for me, I always liked working in the shadows. So I focused a lot on like policy and the writing and everything like that. You know, we had some drama in the group a lot of times it's really difficult to well it can be difficult to manage together and really figure out things as an organization or like you know as a group of organizers we there were just interpersonal things that really couldn't be amended so we ended up breaking up and breaking apart Uh, we continue to focus on our own things but I found that you know, what happened to us while we were together was a little too, it was difficult to get over. It was really traumatizing. And it really made me question my, not only my work, but like 
the the bonds and the community that I thought I had created when I needed them they they weren't there so I actually took time off I did some like micro organizing or micro revolutionary work I would say through you know I would write letters to people who were incarcerated focusing on black female sex workers who were incarcerated I also worked for the sex uh, sexual assault and crime victims group in Rensselaer and there was another thing I did oh and I worked on the crisis text line as well. I worked, yeah, I volunteered for them. So those were the things that I was doing until a a now dear friend of mine who is actually down in downtown Albany right now as a a safety team and kind of de-escalation team, Amy Jones. She started working for the organization Citizen Action. They had an event that was coming up and she called me and was like, hey, I know that you're not organizing anymore, but I would really appreciate if you came out and did this. So I like to say that Amy Jones Italian jobbed me. You know, it was like, she called me and I was like, I'm assembling a team. And I was just like, you son of a bitch, I'm in. And that's essentially how I got back into it. I went and I spoke at their event. After that, I was shortly fired from my job at the state for very shady reasons, for reasons that they still can't truly explain to me. But I ended up moving to Citizen Action and there I became the statewide civil rights organizer. And working there really allowed for me to focus more on my activism and my organizing and really sharpen some of the tools that I had for organizing. And it helped me also kind of like build my, I would say like build my overall belief system, I guess, around organizing, Uh, really understand what I stood for and what I couldn't stand for, what I found would be um, to be considered community violence and what we really need in order to win in our communities. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You're only like 33 years old. Only, you say only 33 and I appreciate that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no, but think about it. A, half of your life is either baby to adolescence. And in such a short amount of time, you've already done that, which is in your adult, a short adult life. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> you truly want to keep your community safe. And I've heard it in your voice when you speak, and I'm going to quote you for a second. You've said, we need to redefine a community of public safety. When we've, when someone who is struggling with addiction, putting them in jail does not work. When we have someone struggling with a mental health crisis, putting them in jail does not work. Correct. Putting people in jail without bail does not work. And these are not the ways of keeping our community safe. And when you said that and you were, you were paused and you were patient and I was just (laughs) chills came over me and it was so powerful. It's so powerful. I don't have a question. I just wanted to tell you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and it is, and it is something that I still truly believe in my heart of hearts. I think that the pandemic has really shown us that isolation and lack of community and, and lack of like humane, like humane interaction is not what we need to get better. We don't put people who are sick. We don't, we don't separate them from the masses. Yes. We put them 
I mean, I guess COVID's a very bad example, but you know, there are reasons why students volunteer to hold babies in the, you know, in the maternity ward. There are reasons why people volunteer to visit hospital beds. There are reasons why physical touch is so important. And I think this year we have really figured that out. Along with that, we have seen, I feel like we have seen this resurgence of maybe not even a resurgence, but like this really unique birth of like just interest in social justice and everything that's going on. And I feel like part of that reason is because people aren't distracted anymore or they're not as distracted anymore. Nowadays, maybe before, you know, all you had time to do was sit down and read or or watch videos or do that kind of thing. And when George Floyd was murdered, it caused it created so many questions that usually get wiped away because, oh, my God, I have to feed the kids. Oh, my God, I have to get to work. Oh, my God, I have to do this thing. But we had enough people who were asking the same questions that we all then realized these questions are not answerable. And that's an issue. And there needs to be accountability. There needs to be conversations around policing. And we need to do better as a community. I feel like we do have some people who, you know, we do have some communities who have detracted from this or really have, I wouldn't say detract, but like have really tired of these conversations. And I understand like the fatigue is real across the board. I'm tired. I've been in bed for honestly two days because I've just like after the Chauvin verdict, then, you know, like Micaiah was murdered like minutes after or maybe even during and it's just like we can't even have a moment to celebrate this marginal step in accountability because now we have another person to demand justice for so i don't know where i was going with that but <laughs> all that to say no, make let it, let it go. i understand yeah. no it's a, it, it overall it goes back to the safer community absolutely you know what i mean Yes, we we look back and we see that there need to be more more resources available for folks between calling the police. What can we do as communities to intercept or maybe even prevent these situations that get so out of hand that then need police who are then trained to de-escalate no matter what, even if that means shooting. There was no reason for him to shoot a 15-year-old girl when you have a taser. There's just no reason. There's no reason. And it's, you know, it, it breaks my heart that folks are saying that it's justified when really it's not. People do stupid things all the time. There are so many kids out there or adults out there with stupid or, you know, with really ridiculous stories of their childhood. And they're like, I can't even believe I, you know, I can't even believe I'm alive right now. Like, you know, that kind of thing. And we're all entitled to that life, to being able to look back and like, God, what a dumb shit I was. Thank God, you know, like, thank God I had that parent or, you know, that person to really grab me by the shoulders and say like, um, girl, you need to sit all the way down and relax. We're just, we're just not seeing that anymore. We're not seeing these interventions the way that we used to, or maybe it's that all of these resources are going to communities that are not, that don't look like mine, that are under-policed and over-resourced. Um, we, we're also seeing that. You can tell what part of a neighborhood you're in. You can even you know, especially if you're walking, you're driving with your eyes closed, don't do that. But the even the quality of the roads change so drastically. You know, it starts with something like that. You know, if you want to know, 
whether or not you're in a good neighborhood, quote unquote, good neighborhood, you have to look at the roads and count how many grocery stores are around. It's that easy. In September of 2019, you, John Legend, Oh my God. Loretta Lynch, who's the former <laughs> attorney general of the U.S. Senator Janaris, who is the New York senator of the 12th district. Yep. We went to prison together. Essentially. We went to prison. We went to yes, prison. We MSNBC town hall event at Sing Sing yes. Correctional Facility to advocate for ending mass incarceration. Can you please tell me about that experience? <laughs> it was pretty epic. Um, I actually didn't get an autograph, but I did get a picture. So that counts. Yeah. So it, it really came from the work that we were doing with John Legend and his team. They have been doing some really great stuff around mass incarceration and really ending mass incarceration. They were really focusing on the bill reform as well. That well, that was, yeah, one of their main focuses. And, you know, my or, you know, yeah, citizen action was also really deep in the work. And it really just came from like a random text from my um, supervisor at the time. She you know, does a lot of like national work. And so she was like really well known for her work too. These kind of things never really mattered to her. She just kind of was like, okay, who are you? So she would always be put on these teams because, you know, she wouldn't be like, oh my God, look at you. But she like straight up just didn't want to go at the time or she was like caught up with something. I think she had to do some work thing. So she texted me like, hey, there's going to be an MSNBC town hall in Sing, at Sing Sing. Would you be interested in going? And I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. She's like, yeah, I think like John Legend and Senator Gianaris will be there. And I was like, oh, my God, of course. <laughs> you know, I was like, that sounds amazing. Wait, let me check um, my schedule. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Ripped. I'm free. How, how silly. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I drove up from Albany and, you know, we we actually came as John Legend's guests. So that was pretty cool. So, yeah, we walked through. I like walked up and I gave my ID and everything like that. And they're like, oh, here's a guest. So they like walked us over to his trailer. He wasn't like ready to like meet us or anything like that. So we kind of hung out in the reception area. There were a number of other, you know, folks that came from other organizations and the like. Um, I had a lovely time with Senator Gianaris and also Chantel Smith who works for uh, the leader, Madam Stewart Cousins. And it, it was just really cool. He, he was really nice. He was like, I, I, I like can't even, <laughs> I still get like, ah. He was just really wonderful when uh, we met. He was super receptive, like was just like, you know, I know that you guys are the ones that are on the ground doing this work and we're just so grateful. You know, we did the pictures and everything like that. And it was just like really it was a really great time. And, and, and one really cool thing about that uh, town hall was that there, there also had folks who were incarcerated at the prison. They also got to be a part of the audience. And so that was really neat. You know, they sat on a separate side, like it was a, a square and, you know, they sat on one side and we kind of took up the three sides. And what was really nice too, I mean, and I think this is where I could tell that, you know, our country was ready for this conversation and to do this work was that when they came out, we like, you know, applauded for them and stuff. And, you know, we were sitting across from them and we would just be like, you know, we would just like pantomime, like, so support you, like we're here for you, like that kind of thing. And, and they actually got to ask really great questions as well. Um, you know, all like, 
there were really interesting like visuals that happened. Like, you know, they were asked like, how many of you are fathers? And like, most of them stood up. And it's like, these are, these are kids who are growing up without their father because they're here. Like, do they really need to be here? Or can we have them back in their communities doing something to be held accountable for what they've done, but also pouring that back into the community? Because right now we have 40, you know, able-bodied in some way men who are just wasting away in prison who could be pursuing bachelor's or graduate degrees or high school diplomas who could be learning a trade who could be you know providing education or some sort of mentorship to the youth in the community to who could be like hey i did that really stupid thing you're thinking about here are the scars to prove it here's a better way to do it. Or here's what I would have done instead of getting, instead of hurting myself, my family and the person that I harmed. And that's just assuming all those people are actually guilty. We know that in New York state, over 80% of people in prison are there because of a plea bargain or some sort of plea deal to avoid either going to trial or to just for for some reason or another. Um, So it's just so much that really goes into that. But also John John Legend was awesome. It was really cool to meet him (laughs) and to take a picture with him. And one really cool thing that happened too is that like, you know, I guess Trump also watched that that town hall and got really mad at John Legend and Chrissy Teigen and and all that stuff. So that was really cool too. Anything to piss him off is just like a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. That's really cool. Awesome opportunity that you got to do that and experience that. Yeah. I'm kind of taking a pivot though. So I was like I mentioned earlier, I was up, I'm listening. <laughs> and when we talk about incarceration in general like I didn't know that they can't have hand sanitizer yeah I had no idea like it makes Mm -hmm. sense but it had to be told to me to have a light bulb go off like you know I didn't really think of that I have you know I went to the prison once when you're in criminal justice and they like yeah I remember that that. you Mm -hmm. think about those conditions right they're not comfortable or there's you know like what you were saying on that podcast and it's, I, I don't, yeah, sometimes you have to hear things from other people. Like I should, like, I'm like, Marissa, how come you've never thought of that? You know what I mean? And like looking mm-hmm. at COVID cases and incarceration. And like you said, people don't have to be there and something needs to change. And I just found that so interesting that, and you know, again, more of a comment than it is a question because yeah. I learned a lot from you without even actually talking to you yet. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> well, I'm really glad. And, and yeah, I feel like that definitely, you know, when COVID hits, I feel like that was a real wake up call for a lot of people too, kind of like exposing the things about prison and just the systems of incarceration that we really just never consider. The fact that like, they're pretty much stacked on top of each other. These buildings are dilapidated and, you know, there's mold growing everywhere. They're not getting, you know, their, their meals are not nutrients, are not nutrient dense. So they're weak already. Being in prison ages you faster than you being out here, you know, out, out in the, in the regular world. And also, yeah, you, you, they're create, they're making, or rather rebottling, we later found out, but they're rebottling sanitizer that they're not even able to use because of the alcohol content. Also, one thing to know is that 
I love true crime. I'm like t- a total true crime fanatic. I was into true crime before it was like a thing. I used to get in trouble for like watching, you know, like forensic files and all that stuff when I was like younger. Cause it was, it, my parents just didn't get it. They were like, this is, this is really bad. <laughs> but one, one interesting fact is that in Alcatraz, their hooch, their like, you know, prison wine or whatever was milk and gasoline. Yeah. And, and that's because of the alcohol content in gasoline, you know, the ethanol or whatever, they would use that to get drunk and then they would cut it with like, you know, gasoline would be like the base or whatever to make it ingestible. But yeah, that's how bored they were in Alcatraz that they would drink milk and gasoline. Yeah. (laughs) You're a founding member of the Black Lives Matter upstate New York. Mm-hmm. You nearly founded the organization of NNLB, mm-hmm. which I'm going to ask you about in a little bit. Sure. I read the Times Union article about the Rochester protest. Mm, yeah. So from advocating, obviously, for justice and equality and incarceration and your movement in bail reform, how does it feel to be so brave and to truly make a difference? It's, it doesn't feel like bravery at all. And sometimes I don't feel like I'm making a difference. You know, I think I opened up our conversation with like kind of letting you know, like I, you know, I got a few calls and that's because right now in downtown Albany, um, there are, you know, there are protesters outside of the Albany police department. They've had an encampment there since um, the weekend and they are now being like agitated by the Albany Police Department. And what I just found out was the Schenectady Police Department too. Over the last few hours, I've had a few friends of mine disappear who were, you know, who were arrested or just, you know, like pulled off the street. I've had a few other friends um, hospitalized and we're hearing rumblings of people being charged with terrorism for being out there in pink tents and drawing on the sidewalks with chalk. And I'm not there. And that doesn't feel good to me. It's, it's this internal battle of like, I don't have the spoons right now to be out there, but I really wish I could be because I want to be there supporting my friends and helping my friends. But it also is this thing where you have to understand, like you can't be in every battle that, and, and my friend was just so wonderful to tell me this because I was kind of like, I, I had to text him and just be like, please walk, talk me off this ledge because I'm packing a bag now. And I know if anything happens, like I won't be able to, you know, really keep myself together or like keep people safe or keep myself safe. And, you know, he said, like, remember, like you're a person, not a soldier. Like these people were that we are up against were literally trained for street combat and like all these different things. And it reminds me of when I was in Rochester in, uh, you know, children's knee pads and elbow pads, (laughs) wearing a skateboarding helmet and wearing, you know, chemistry goggles. And I was on the street, like kind of calling the audibles for our safety team. And people were running away as we were getting pepper sprayed and, and, and maced and the sonic chart, the sonic weapons and everything like that. And people were running with umbrellas. And the only thing I could ask them to do is just please drop your umbrella. So someone else can pick it up and go to the front and just try to protect our lines. And people had to tell me about that. Cause it really comes to a point where I, 
I don't remember. Like, I don't remember it. Thank God I did a live so that I saw some of what I did as well. But it really is just like, I don't know. Sometimes you just go automatic and you just do it. And a lot of time, I mean, honestly, I would have to say like, it's an honor to do this work. It's an honor to have the capacity and just like to have received the education and to have just met the people that I know and learn from them and have them learn from me and kind of, you know, just have this circle of like learning from each other and also learning from the outside, learning from people that we've met along the way. Um, it's an honor. It's terrible. It's terrifying. And it's exhausting, but I can't think of anything else. Like I can't think of, you know, I, I always knew that, and, and my dad hated this about me, to be honest, whenever there are people running away from something, I always run towards it. Once we watched, you know, we've watched Forrest Gump together many times and he's just like, you know, be like Forrest and just run. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't run away. I just can't. It's like, if not me, then who, who else would do this? Who else, you know, who else could do this? But someone like me who's been afforded so many privileges and who's been raised in, in love and has been shielded from all of this for so long. I feel like my candles are a little longer because I haven't had to deal with all of this for so long. So that's still something I'm working through. It's terrifying. I feel like it's never enough. I feel like I never know enough. I never have enough. I never do enough. Um, and my friends can tell you that all the time. I'm always crying to them. Like, I didn't do anything today. And they're like, are you kidding me? You wrote a whole statement or blah, 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 whatever. D dumb little things. But yeah, it's, it's always this internal thing of like, keep pushing it. Well, I think you're brave and I read tons of amazing things on you and I've listened to you. So from someone who is on the outside, who's never met you, I think of you as brave. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. So what is the best advice you've ever gotten? Gosh, the best, I've, best advice I've ever gotten. That's a good question. I feel like I get so much advice. I think it's just find, find a moment for joy. There's that quote that's like, every day might not be good, but there's good in every day. And it really, you're going to meet my cat. Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of joy, look, this is my, this is my baby boy, Apollo. He wants to join. Apollo. Yeah. It, it, it really is like, yeah. Find your joy, find something to smile about, find something to be happy about, find some way to come back to yourself um, at the end of every day. And I think that, I think that has truly saved my life a few times. So tell me about the NNLB. Sure. So NNLB is an organization of Black women who we met at Citizen Action. We were all organizers there and we found the need to kind of create a space where we provide like radical Black, like Black-centric, Black-centered education around reparations around Black Lives Matter, around prison abolition, and really around community, I would say community involvement, like community organizing and the like. Um, we believe that strong communities are the 
cornerstone for healthy and safe communities. Um, knowing your neighbor is so important. And, you know, knowing your surroundings and, and knowing where you've come from as well. So we focus a lot on education. We do different webinars. We have a monthly live stream that we do. And we also work on direct, direct giving and mutual aid. We work on, you know, we, we uh, focus on women and well women and non-men black women and non-men black family single mothers and the like and and just make sure that not only are black people surviving but we're thriving there are times where we will you know provide groceries and stuff and you know they'll tell us like okay the groceries are you know fifty dollars so we'll send them 70 because like Get, a, get something for yourself, get a face mask or new nail polish, or I know nail polish is not $20, but like just that kind of thing of like, you know, we're not, we're not keeping the strings of our coin purses so tight because we understand that when you go to DSS and you ask for a housing voucher for $250, they're going to give you $220 because they want you to struggle to find that other $30 to prove that you're self-sufficient, not understanding that you going to DSS and asking for help is your show of self-sufficiency. So we really believe in like people, you know, the, the folks that ask us for help don't need to prove that they're struggling or they're suffering. It looks so different for each person. You can look at someone on the street right now and not know that they're sleeping in their car or that they've only had ramen for the past few days. And at the end of the day, it's not meant for us to determine that. We fundraise we go into spaces with um, like white allies that are interested in providing some sort of assistance through reparations or direct giving. Some of times it's the same thing, but we that is how we do the work. We we give it's kind of like Robin Hood. So well, but we don't steal. So it really is like taking the money from folks who have the extra money, you know. And we've had folks like cancel their vacations and be like whatever, I'll just do a spa day, but here's the $3,000 I was going to spend in the Bahamas. Like, you know, and that's huge. That's huge. Like that pays for, you know, 10 families to at least <laughs> to do so much. Yeah. So, so that's what we do. We also provide on the ground support for uh, protest and, and organizing. It's what we did in Rochester. Um, we have you know, one of our founders is in Rochester. We're all over the state as well. Um, we have, yeah, one of our organizers is in Rochester. Um, she called us up and was like, we need you here. And, you know, myself and Amy were in the car in less than an hour and we were on the road. You know, we had our to-go bags and we got there, we met up, we went to Walmart, we got our supplies, we had our hotel rooms. And those are other things that, you know, our fundraising really helps us do, be able to pay for the gas and the tolls and, you know, the apartment, the Airbnb or the hotel and, and the food so that we are able to go out there and help people. And not even that, but also help with bail. Right now, we're actively sharing the links to the bail fund for all for Albany, the all, excuse me, it's the Albany Fund for Black Lives. You know, and that's where people, uh, when they when they get arrested, they can contact our point person, and then you know they will provide the the bail to get them out for the day, or you know, unto, uh, get them out in that same day. Yeah, that's incredible. What resources? That's that is <laughs> that is great. And I love the website, by the way. I'm in marketing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. One of our one of our brilliant organizers. She is just 
she's the best ever. Um, her name is Amber Johnson and she, she created the web. She was like, Hey y'all, I was, you know, I was hanging out and I created our website, give us feedback. And we were like, wow, this is amazing. So we have a great website. We have great graphics by another one of our organizers. And that's the really cool thing is that, you know, each of it feels like, it feels like we're soulmates in a way that when we met each other, it was just like, oh, hey, you know, and, you know, we we ran into really difficult con- um, situations together and the way that we just kind of like, like fell in line and and just supported one another really showed us like there's something here and there's something really special. Um, we've had really difficult times together. We've experienced loss and joy and and so many things. And we actually were planning a weekend together uh, this weekend um, because you know we all have our our vaccines finally and we're just in a you know, we, we were just like, we need to see each other. Like, I haven't seen you in so long. And they're like, I'm going to say it on the podcast. Uh, I'm sorry to all my other friends, but like, they're one of the only text groups I don't ignore. Like, I never ignore their texts. Oh, you see. Seriously, it's, it's wild to see how often, like, we talk to each other all day. We and we don't get sick of each other, which is incredible. Um, but we really do talk to each other all day. When this comes out, like an hour after it airs, because it's probably gonna be like an hour, you're gonna get a couple like test texts, like, oh, let's see if I'm in that camera. Right, yeah. <laughs> Remember me? Like, mm, sorry, who are you? I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Coming to the end. We ask the same thing for everybody who's come on the podcast. Sure. And that is, what is one thing that you've experienced that everyone should go through? Oh, man. I I truly think it is. Oh, no, I forgot the word. I, I really think it's like, oh, you know what? It's, it's put, it's this, it's this specific kind of love, like a platonic love that is like unflinching earlier this year I was really struggling I think it was maybe even last year everything just got really heavy for me and I was really struggling with my politics and just like you know god do we what are what are we doing this for like do we keep this up like what what are we even here for you know just like questioning everything and you know NNLB my girlfriends really just kind of holding space for me to freak out and say like, what is this all here for? I'm just, I'm just going to quit all of this and, and work at a bank or become a a housewife or something like a, you know, that, that kind of thing. And this was probably in the midst of us, like doing some really heavy work that demanded a lot of, um, a lot of energy from all of us, but they stopped and they really gave me the opportunity to just get on a Zoom call with them and just cry and just, why are we here? And what are we doing this for? And them just patiently being like, here are some things to consider. Like, here are some things we can do. And if you need to take a step back right now, that's fine. This work will still be here. And just knowing that it's not all or nothing for us, it's not all or nothing for me in that friendship. I don't have to always show up 100% was just like, it was just such 
a breath of fresh air, knowing that I have these people to hug and to hold and to cry with, you know, and to laugh with and to share funny videos with. It just meant so much to me. And I know that anytime I'm not in a good space, I have that group just like they do, where I can just be like, hey, I don't have it right now. I'm not going to be able to answer for a few days, but I'm reading along. I'm going to probably send a random emoji every once in a while, but don't engage me. I'll, you know, I'll come back when I'm ready. And they're, and they'll just be like, okay, cool. And when I do come back, they're like, okay, here's what you miss. That's like, I didn't miss it. I was reading. I was lurking, <laughs> but, oh, I can't believe that all that speaking. And I, I still can't remember the word. It's, uh, oh man, I can't you believe said, it. You said platonic support and love essentially. Like yeah. Yeah. But just like, <laughs> I, I totally but, got what you were saying though too. Yeah. Lo- just love without, yeah. Love without like ex loving you for who you are rather than for what you can do for other people, um, which is which is something that I would say that I'm new to. I feel like growing up, I was a trophy kid. And then I was like a trophy girlfriend in high school and college. I was, you know, it was always like, what, what can my partner brag about with me? Or what can my parents brag about with me? So I, I really did become obsessed with accolades and making sure I had all these things that would prove my worth. And, and that also came from, you know, being a black girl in a mostly like in predominantly white institutions. It's like, that's how I proved my worth by showing how useful I was. And not to say that I'm useless in my group, but it's nice to not always have to produce in order to get that, that boost or that, Oh my God, I love you. This is so great kind of thing. Cleanna provided us with many links, including social media handles and information about the NNLB. So please follow the NNLB for all information and updates and events and content and all things Cleanna. So visit nnlbunited.com. Cleanna, you are, I know you're brave. No matter what you say, you are brave <laughs> to me. You Thank are you. genuine. You are so strong. Your head is held so high. You are an officially a lady with lions. Oh, thank you. So happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the work that you're doing and providing a platform for women like us who do this work and often just like do it in the shadows or just do it without recognition. Um, The work that you're doing here is so important and I so appreciate it. And just thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, it's an honor to be able to talk to people like you. So thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care.